Good morning. There you go. Got enough y'all to respond or not. I have really, really enjoyed getting to know y'all this weekend. I think my biggest regret of the weekend is that I didn't get to know everybody. Like, every, everybody. Um, so, There's just so many new people. That's really good to know. Um, I'm not sure if I would have picked up on that without your subtle hint. So this is a guy, and this is Cindy. Um, it's really nice to meet y'all. See, notice that if I ask you who you are and don't allow you to use your name, it becomes a little complicated. I was driving along one time and my son in the back seat said to me, Dad, can you use three words to describe yourself? Only three words. And, and I thought about it for a moment and I said, well, I am um, I'm a Christian, I'm a husband, and I'm a father. And, and as I thought about it, I was like, I think that's, I think that's the three words that I want to use. And then, then I was disappointed because I, I was like, in my own head, I'm like, but I'm so much more than that. You know? I am that. And that's really the three words that I would use primarily to describe myself. But I'm so much more than that. And so this morning I want to talk about identity. Identity is a subject that sometimes we like to avoid because... Um, we hear so much talk now about subjects like self-worth, right? Which are things that maybe we want to kind of stray away from. Because in and of ourselves, without God, we have no eternal value, right? We all, hopefully we all understand that. You know, Christian identity, when we talk about Christian identity, it's not about finding yourself. Everyone's on a journey to find themselves. Christian identity isn't about finding yourself. It's about discovering who God created you to be. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, discovering who God created you to be. This morning I want to talk about three different things. First of all, I want to talk about why we need to know our identity. And then I want to talk about how does Satan try to steal our identity. And then finally, I want to talk about how does Christ change our identity. So why do we need to know our identity? Well, well, sending you her name, that's great. Most of you probably know your name. Right? He knew that he was a guy. That's probably really good, too. So, but above and beyond that, as we begin to know and say and describe who we are, it's important to understand who we are. And I'll give you a little bit of a reason for that. I'll give you a little story on how identity connects us kind of with what's around us. There was a church years ago that was celebrating its 200th anniversary. And one of the things that was special about this church is they had a huge bell tower with bells up in the top. And, and one of the exciting things about its 200th anniversary was that they were going to ring the bells. They were going to have a special bell ringing ceremony. And not long before the, the, the service was coming up, 
their bell ringer had to go leave to another another state. He had to take care of some family issues, and she wasn't going to be around for the bell ringing. And this was their only bell ringer. And so immediately the preacher put an ad out. He's like, I just need someone to ring the bell. You know, someone that, that knows what they're doing and can ring a bell. And, and so a guy from a neighboring town came over, and, and he went to interview for the job. And so the preacher said, oh, come on in, come on in. And, and so he takes them, and they start going up the stairs. And it's a long way up. You know, it's like over 100 feet up. It's like 150 feet up in the air to these bells. And they're climbing the stairs, and it's wearing them both out a little bit. And they get all the way to the top. And this young bell ringer slips, and he falls. And says, boom, hits his head against the bell. And boom. And, and he hits his head against the bell, and he falls down 150 feet to the ground. Boom, bouncing off of bells, right? And the preacher is, of course, very concerned. He goes running down and he calls an ambulance. And the ambulance comes and the paramedic comes over and, and starts working on the guy. And he looks up at the preacher and he says, Hey, man, do you know this guy's name? And the preacher says, No. But he sure rings the bell. <laughs> Sorry. That's, that's my lame joke for the morning. Maybe more accurately, it should have said, But it's a sure rings the bell. You know, more on a more serious note, though, I do. I worked in IT uh, in information technology, doing basically deep work for the past uh, 15 years. And one of the things that I face a lot is questions about security. Uh, people are worried about how secure their information is because identity theft is a very serious thing. You know, you can be working along on your computer and you open the wrong attachment, you get an email and you open the wrong attachment, and it puts a keyboard logger on your machine, and next thing you know, all of your information is getting stored up in some database somewhere where someone's going to mine it eventually and try to steal everything that you have, right, become you. And we're all a little worried about that because that's somewhere in the great unknown, and it kind of kind of worries us. And I, I get it. Like, that's a good thing to worry about. But I think that sometimes maybe our focus is wrong because I'm telling you, as Christians, we have a lot more serious concern than someone stealing our identity, and that is that Satan wants to steal our identity. Satan wants to steal each of your identities, and to do that, he wants to find out things about you that he can use and that he can change and that he can control and that he can turn your identity to become a worldly identity rather than a Christian identity. If you will, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, we'll start at verse 10. It says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Those of you that have a great memory may remember that we used this passage yesterday a little bit. And I want to look at it again today, but there's a portion that we didn't really look at yesterday that I like to concentrate on, and that is verse 12. It says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness. Satan, the powers of Satan, wish to steal our identity. 
the last part of this passage says, in the end of verse 13, it says, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand. You know, this word to stand, often we express our identity by what we stand for. We say, I stand for this, right? That expresses our identity. If we don't know who we are, if we don't know our identity, we are an easy target for Satan. So the more you understand about who Christ wants you to be, the more able you are to stand in your identity as a Christian. When we know our identity and understand our identity, we have the freedom to live in it. I want to tell you another story. This is a true story, unlike the Bell story, which I don't believe was true for what it's worth. Uh, I want to tell you a story this time that is a true story, and it's about a man named Cliff Young. In 1983, in Australia, they built a new mall in Melbourne. It was the first mall of Melbourne, Australia. And to raise awareness for this mall, they decided that they would like to have an event that would draw people's attention to this mall. And so what they decided to do was have an ultra-marathon where they would run from the mall in Melbourne to the mall in Sydney, Australia. There was already a mall there. So it was going to raise awareness for both, but it was really going to let people know about this Melbourne mall. Now, those of you that don't know Australia well, it is 544 miles from one mall to the other. An ultra-marathon of 544 miles. That's how far you were going to run. Now, in this time, in 1983, there was a very clear way that you would run an ultra-marathon. It was understood. All the runners that ran ultra-marathons knew how to do it, and this is what you did. You were a good runner, and so you got up in the morning, and you started the event in the morning, and you ran, and you ran a good, steady pace. You ran a good, hard pace, and you just ran through the day. And then about 8 o'clock that evening, you would put up camp, and you'd camp for the night, and then you'd get up in the morning, and you'd go running again. And that's what you did. These guys were really good at it, and they could set a good pace during the day, and they get their rest at night, and then they go run again. And so... All these guys with their, you know, with their sponsored shirts, you know, like Adidas and, and Nike, and probably Under Armour may not have been around then, but you know, all these companies, right? They've got the stamps on their shirts and on their shoes. They're sponsored by these companies. They're paid by these companies. They come in and they're all ready to run. You know, we're talking mid twenty-year-olds, maybe maybe thirty at the max, where you're really at that prime age for running. And everyone lines up at the starting line, and they're all lining up there, and they're along with them comes this old man. He's, he's 61 years old, and he walks up to the starting line. Now he doesn't have he doesn't have any any sponsored you know marks on his shirt. He's he's wearing a t-shirt and he's wearing some some kind of some jogging style pants and no shorts like all the other runners were wearing. And he had his he had his running shoes on, but they weren't fancy. They were kind of wore out. And he also had had what they call gum boots, but we know them as musk boots. He had the musk boots along for in case it got wet. And he lines up at the line, and the reporter kind of found this amusing, so they come over to him, and they're like, hey, uh, you know, the observer stand over there. And Cliff said, oh, oh, no, I was planning on running this race. 
And they said, well, well, what's your name? And so my name is Cliff Young. And they said, well, Cliff, have you ever, have you ever ran an ultramarathon before? Nah, no, nope, never done it. They said, well, have you ever ran a marathon before? Nah, no, no. Well, what makes you think you can run an ultramarathon? He said, well, I'm a sheep farmer. He said, I've been all the time back in the Australia Badlands just chasing sheep around. He said, I, I run all the time. I don't have, you know, a four-wheeler or anything like that. I just run. And so, so I, I just thought, if I run that, I may as well run here. So they all line up. I mean, what can you do? The guy, he can race, I guess, if he wants to. And so the reporters are already going to make a, a joke out of this. So they all line up at the line, and boom, starting gun goes off, and they start running. And, of course, all these experienced runners, they're headed for the hills, right? And Cliff, bless his heart, he starts just like this. started calling it the Cliff Young Shuffle, because that's how he ran. He's just, just a nice, steady, little jogging pace. Everyone shuffled. I probably would have too. So, everyone runs that day, and that evening comes along, and they put up their tent. Well, Cliff Young didn't get the memo that she was supposed to stop. And so he just kept on running. He didn't stop. He kept on running, and midway through the night, he passes by the tents, and he keeps on running. The next morning, when they got up, they told the other runners, they said, hey, that old guy, he passed you in the night, and he's still out there somewhere. So everybody's like, oh, it's time to catch him. So they go tearing off. They run all day long at their great pace. They don't catch Cliff. And then they got to stop again that night. Cliff just ran through the night again. Just kept going. He ran the race straight through, 544 miles, no stops. He won the race. Not only did he won the race, but he beat the next fastest person by 10 hours, and he broke the current record by over two days. When he got done, they were giving a $10,000 prize to the winner, and he said, oh, I didn't understand there was a prize in this thing, so he split the 10 grand between the other runners. Didn't take a cent for himself. Because he felt bad that they didn't get a chance to win. <laughs> you know, the thing that I love about this story of, of Cliff is that he wasn't so concerned about what everyone else was doing around him. He was living in his own identity. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Living in the identity, in your Christian identity that you have been given as a Christian. And understanding that and living your life in that. So to begin with, I want to talk a little bit about how Satan tries to steal our identity. I want to bring out four points. The first is that he gets us caught up in the routine of life. He gets us caught up in the routine of life. So we begin to believe that nothing in life great can happen to us. Nothing amazing can happen to us. And if anything amazing does happen to us, well, it was just luck or it would have happened anyway. Right? For those of you that were here yesterday, you remember me telling you the story about the speaking part that I had at Maranatha? Right? How easy would it be to walk away from that and say, well, I had memorized the part anyway. I really would have known it. Right? That's what Satan wants to do. He wants to take away any glory that could be given to God and just make it routine. The next thing is, the once he does that then, he begins to condition us to see everything as familiar or ordinary. 
So when life becomes too ordinary, we're tempted to just do things like halfway or really truly not pour ourselves into it. Like, for instance, what do you do Sunday morning? Someone? What do you do Sunday morning? You go to church, right? Yeah, you go to church. So, but why do you go to church? Do you just go to church because you're supposed to go to church Sunday morning? See, you see how easy it is for Satan to take something good and turn it into something that's routine. And the next thing you know, you're just sitting in church because you had to go to church Sunday morning. It's just like, well, how long is it until this thing's over? That's what Satan wants to do to steer your identity. He makes things in the world just routine. Next, he makes us believe that we are either less or more than God says we are. Now, I'm not going to talk about being more than God says we are because we addressed that very specifically yesterday when we talked about humility, okay? But since we talked about that, I want to flip the coin now, and I want to talk about how Satan makes us believe that we're less than God says we are. Psalm 139.14, the psalmist says, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. Do you believe this morning that you are fearfully and wonderfully made? See, Satan wants to take that away from you. He wants to feel like you're really not that great. That God couldn't have made you with some purpose and design. First Peter 2, and I'll ask you to turn there with me. First Peter 2. Verses 9 and 10 say, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. I love this passage because this expresses the reason of Christian identity. What does it say? In time past, you were not a people. Basically, this is saying that in time past, you didn't have eternal value. Without God in your life, without being a Christian, you didn't have, there was nothing that you could do that was eternally good in and of yourself. Right? But now you are a people of God. In time past, uh, let's see, let me read this. Who were not, who were who once were not the people of God. Now, let me read it over here. I've got it right. Which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God. We'll look at this passage again later, so you can just kind of stay here if you'd like. But I just think that it's so such a blessing as Christians to understand that although we were nothing, now we're a people of God. And it's fascinating to me that in Satan's attempt to steal our identity, he really wants us to get back to the place where we are nothing. The fourth thing is that he makes us believe that we have nothing to offer. Think of the story of Jonah. Now, Jonah has a real whale of a story. Sorry, that's a bad one. So, Jonah lived his life 
running away from God, and then finally, when God tunes him back to where he needs to go, right, he goes in, and he goes to Nineveh, and he preaches to him, and then suddenly the whole town repents in sackcloth and ashes, and Jonah goes out, and in Jonah chapter 4, and we won't go there specifically, but if you want to look this up yourself, feel free to, in verses 4 and 8, there are two times out there that as Jonah's sitting out there, he says, it is better for me than to die than to live. After what God had used him for, the repentance of an entire city, Satan had brought him to the point where he said, it's just better for me to die than to live. That's what Satan wants to do to you. He wants to make us believe that we have nothing to offer, that we're of no value whatsoever. Then, then, this is where Satan has fun. Because at that point, once he's done those four things, then he makes you believe that you can create your own identity. He makes you believe that you can have your own identity in your truck, or you can have your own identity in your money, or you can have your own identity in your friends, or maybe for those of you that are older, in your family or in your work, right? You create an identity that's outside of God where it's like, this is who I am. Well, those things are fine. I'm not saying that's wrong to have a truck. I know I've dragged on trucks this weekend a good bit. Sorry, guys. But I'm not saying that's wrong to have a truck or, or that it's wrong to have money or that it's wrong to have a family. But our identity is first in God. And then under that are these other things then that, that go along with that. So, how does Christ change our identities. Someone asked me earlier this week if this was supposed to represent purpose because this book looks like he has purpose. I hadn't thought about that when I got this book. But how many of you here, if I were giving this away, how many of you here would like to have this poster? Yeah, a lot of people raising their hands. Okay. All right. So I'm sorry that I have to do this, but. Now, how many of you would like to have this poster? Oh, so I put my hands up. Wow. Okay. All right. Fine. Now I'm making me take a screen. All right. So now, how many of you would like to have this poster? All right. So I got one little guy back there. Like, yeah, sure. I'll take this morning poster. All right. So not much there, right? All right. Let's get rid of that for a second. And yeah, you can have the poster after church if you like it. So. I have to say this for those of you that were here yesterday because I used some fake bills yesterday. This 20 is exceptionally real. Okay? This is not a fake 20. So if I were to give this away, I like saying if at the beginning of that sentence, how many of you would like to have it? All right? Okay. Fine. All right. Hate to do this. But now how many of you would like to have it? What? No, this isn't fair. You aren't going to make me go to extremes, are you? All right, fine. Now, how many of you would like to have it? What? Y'all aren't playing fair. You don't want the paper, but you're fine with this. Why do you want this and not that's a bigger paper? This is a tiny. Why do you want this? I can tell you why you want this. Because you can put tape on there, right? And you can take that into a store, and it's 
spins just like the brand new one, right? I'll tell you why it spins like the brand new one, because a greater authority has given it value. A greater authority has given this paper value. As a Christian, before you're a Christian, you're no more than this paper, right? But when you become a Christian, a greater authority has given you value. That's why, as Christians, we have an identity. That's why it's important to understand that we have value as Christians. Because a greater authority, God, has given that value. As Christians, one of the things that Christ changes in us, one of the first things that Christ changes in us, is that He gives us a new goal. Think about Cliff Young for a moment. He didn't have the same goal that everyone else had. Well, maybe the end goal was the same, but his process was different, right? He had a different way of thinking about it. And, and we're the same way. We gain a new kingdom allegiance. We have a different way of, of thinking about the way that we're running. We have a different way of thinking about the way that we're living. That's the first thing, is that we have a new goal. We no longer chase after the desires of the flesh. Instead, we should be chasing after God. The next thing, and this is one that I think sometimes we don't think about, and I'm not saying that it's super important to everybody, but it's still an important point, is that we have a new father, and it's a perfect father. Now, I say that because many of you were probably raised in great homes where you had a wonderful mother and father that set a great Christian example for you, and that was wonderful. But there are also those among us today and around us in the world that didn't have that opportunity. Maybe they didn't have a father at all, or maybe they had a father that was far, far from perfect. When we become a Christian, we gain a new father, and he's a perfect father. Romans chapter 8, I'll ask you to turn over there with me if you will. Verse 15 says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, wherefore we cry, Abba, Father. You've received the spirit of adoption. We're adopted in as children of God. So now we have God as our Father, and we know that God is perfect. This statement, Abba, Father, always was amazing to me when I found out what it really meant. And most of you probably already know this, but Abba is the Greek word for daddy. Like a little Greek child. You know how, you've, you've seen it before, right? A child is running along, daddy, daddy, right? That's what the child in Greek would say. They would say, Abba, Abba, right? So look at this process now. We're adopted in with a new daddy, but then it goes further and he's our father, right? So it, it denotes the growth in our relationship. Just like your little child says daddy at first and then soon starts saying dad. All too soon starts saying dad. Sorry, I'm, I'm a dad. <laughs> they grow up so quick. So all too soon starts saying dad, and then next thing you know, they're, you know, they're, they're all doing their own thing, right? It's that, it's that process for us. We start off as, as children adopted of God, and then we grow up and we mature in that growth. And so that's what, that's what God wants from us. Is as the perfect father, he wants to see us mature. He wants to see us grow. 
further, as we look at this passage uh, there in Romans 8 where we are, verses 16 and 17 go on to say, The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. And this talks about not just the fact that God is our Father, but that we are heirs of that inheritance. That we can look forward to a new future, which is my next point. That we are given a new future, and we no longer have to fear the future. Many of you will recognize this, this last part of this statement. Before you were Christians, you spent some time fearing the future, right? You worried about what would happen if you were to die tonight. Now, as Christians, we have a new future, and we no longer have to fear the future. I was blessed so much when Rich read this morning from Second Peter 3. There, there's a portion in there where it says, We look for a new heaven and a new earth. See, that's the future that we can look to. We don't have to fear the future. Hebrews 11, I'll just read this for you, verses 13 through 16. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it quickly. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. This passage says that if you had in your mind to turn back to the world, if Satan steals your identity, you can. You can. But as long as you keep that Christian identity, as long as you're following along with God, we have a homeland prepared for us. We don't have to fear the future. And then the next point is that we start to become like Christ. We start to become like Christ. And along with that, God develops in us personal conviction. Out of way because I'm getting ready to move around again. So. Personal, as we grow, as we grow in our relationship with God, God starts to work with us personally and develops for us personal conviction. And I have a little story about this. When, um, when I was in Bible school years and years ago, uh, I had a teacher that would, from time to time, play volleyball. And when he did play volleyball, he would play in his suit pants and his long sleeve white shirt and his dress shoes. And that's how he played volleyball. And I remember that as a youngster, I kind of thought, and I have to what are you doing? That was my process, right? And that was the wrong, wrong way to think. But that's what I did at the time. I remember kind of thinking that and kind of chuckling under my breath. But years later, many years later, uh, that same teacher had, had weekend meetings at our church. Uh, and this was many, many years later. Uh, I, I was, you know, I had young children of my own. I had done a lot of growing up, uh, hopefully a, a decent amount of maturing as well. And I had went off that morning to my boss's place before I went to work. I needed to visit my boss's house to do some work for him, and then I was going to go off to the bank that I worked at. And so I went off there, and this 
this creek was standing next to our place at my parents' house. And so I went to the Boston place, and then on the way from the Boston place to work, I was going to pass back by my house and my parents' house again. And my, the creek was still with my parents. And, and so as I'm driving along, I see out ahead, I see someone running down the road. And, and, and my first thought is, man, someone must need help bad. Because this man was running down the road like he was going somewhere in a hurry, and he had a full suit on whole thing, the coast, the, the whole Quebec. And I was like, man, you must be in trouble. So I'm thinking, you know, I could probably stop. And then as I got closer, you know, it's that preacher. And so, of course, I kept driving because, you know, I didn't want to stop and embarrass him. And, and actually, when he realized the car was coming, he started walking because maybe he thought, too, that it might freak someone out that a man in a suit was running along. But you know what? This time, I had a whole different view on this. As I passed by him and as I went on to work, I thought, you know what? Here's a man that in his relationship with God has developed a personal conviction that he doesn't care if the whole world sees. And then I thought, Ron, how many times are you too shallow to live out your personal conviction in front of people because you're worried what they may think about you? You see, God deals with each of us on a personal level and grows us all up. He develops in us personal conviction. And, and, you know, people are different. I can give you examples of this. Think about when I was, when I was young. Well, I, I still remember this being young. I probably done it my whole life. I put my foot in my mouth a lot. I mean, I really, truly, like, I know how the, I know how the whole thing takes, Right? I spend a lot of time with my foot in my mouth. And that's because I, I tend to talk first and, and think later. I didn't realize for years that there are people that when they're getting ready to have a conversation, they'll, they'll think in advance. They'll map out the whole conversation in their head. Like, well, what am I going to say? And then if they say this, well, what will I say to that? And what about if they say this, then will I say that? When I found that out, I was, my mind was blown. I was like, how do they operate? I spend so much time having to go through conversations because I have a mess of conversations. <laughs> All of you here this weekend probably know that's true. I'm sorry. I sit down beside anybody and just start it right up. So I can't imagine that. But see, that's how we're different, and that's how God lets us be different, right? God lets us each have our own personality and be different people. And it's somewhat the same way within our Christian life. There are black and white principles of God's words that God's word that apply to everyone, right? And also, if you have your membership with the church, there are some black and white rules within the church that apply to everyone in that group, right? And those are things that we all share and that we all need to do. But further than that, God develops in each of us personal conviction. And those are ways that we're personally growing closer to God. The thing that we have to be cautious of then is that we don't judge other people based on our personal conviction. And that's the one blessing that I got from this preacher is that even though he ran in a suit, I knew him well enough to know that I could run beside him in jeans and a t-shirt and running shoes, and he would have no problem with that. And that blessed me. So we start to become like God and in that, God develops personal conviction. Then, the final thing is, is that God changes us so that we want to share His Word. We want to spread the love of God. We want to spread God's Word around. 
We were in 1 Peter 2 earlier, and I'm going to turn back there again. I should have told you to hold it, but I didn't. 1 Peter 2. We're going to look at another portion of that same passage that we were looking at before. It's actually the exact same passage, but I want to bring out a different point in it. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. Uh, We read this before, so I'm just going to pick out a piece. It says in verse 9 that we are a peculiar people that ye should show forth the praises of him who called you out of the out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, that's the next step, is that you show forth the praise of him who called you. We begin to we begin to show reflect the love of God to the world around us. And so we want to spread God's love. We want to spread God's word because we realize in our own personal identity and our own hope for the future that that could apply to other people as well, that that could be given to other people as well. And we just want other people to see God's love, to see what God can do in their lives. And so that's what we begin to do. And I'm not going to go into this real deep because I'm actually going to talk about the idea of witnessing in, in the next section, which is going to be coming up here soon. We're almost at 11 o'clock. So, actually, I'm going to close this little portion, and I'm going to talk to the youth for a bit. Um, I, 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 I dialed this weekend into the youth a little bit, so all you others can listen to. But, um, but for the youth, I want to read a little passage to you, and it comes from Ecclesiastes 11.9. It says, Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth. And walk in the ways of thine heart, and in the sight of thine eyes. But know thou that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. Therefore, remove sorrow from thy heart, and put away evil from thy flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. Now this is coming from Ecclesiastes, right? You heard that, because they use the word vanity in the end, right? We've heard this before in Ecclesiastes, right? So, I want to look at the beginning of this passage, though. It says, Rejoice, young man, in thy youth. And we'll, we'll give this to young women, too, right? Okay? Young men and women in your youth, let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. And this is so freeing. This is basically saying, do what your heart desires. But it, it doesn't end there, right? So, I encourage you, though, as young people, that you spend time this weekend playing volleyball. You spend time this weekend hanging out with other people, and that's great. This is the time of life to build relationships, to build friendships, to be growing in the knowledge of those around you, and also together to be growing in God. It further then says, though, that you need to, but know thou that for all these things God will bring me into judgment. And this is the warning phrase. So this is where it's saying, yes, do follow your heart and do those things, right? Run like Cliff Young. Just keep going. But understand that still sin is sin. Okay? So if you sin, if you do wrong, then God will still judge you for that. So just because you're young, you don't get a pass. Okay? No free pass. Sorry, it's still sin. And then it further says, remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh. So it's challenging you to let those things go. Just don't have evil in your heart. 
Don't have sorrow in your life. Instead, live in the joy of the Lord. And we're going to talk about that in the next section as well. Live in the joy of the Lord. And then finally, it says, for childhood and youth are vanity. And I really think that what it means by this is that those of us that are older can attest that youth disappears far too quickly. And every year, the years go by just a little bit quicker. So, with that, um, each of you, I want to challenge you to, to just, you know, run like Cliff Young. Let your hair blow in the wind. And I know I'm a silly one to say that. I have no hair to blow in the wind. So, fine. I'm, I'm okay with that. Remember, too, though, as I said yesterday, that you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. So, watch your friend group. Run with patience, as Hebrews says, run with patience the race that's set before you. And as Philippians says, press on towards the mark for the prize of the high or heavenly calling of God in Christ Jesus.